Welcome to the Teaching Race Matters podcast from the Runnymede Trust, the UK's leading race equality think tank. This podcast seeks to explore what it means to teach race, migration and empire in schools. We will be interviewing academics, teachers and practitioners as we explore Britain's history of migration and anti-racist activism, as well as the actions being taken in schools across the UK to diversify the curriculum. In this episode, we focus on the histories of Asian youth movements in Britain, groups formed by second-generation South Asians in the 70s and 80s to resist racism in their communities. These groups campaigned for equal opportunities in housing, employment, education and healthcare for South Asian communities. Together they said, we are here to stay and we are here to fight. Shabna, who were the Bengali youth movements and what were they fighting for? So the Bengali youth movements really have to be dated to the geography and the history of East London. So the Bengali community have a long history to East London. They date back to pre-colonial times when they were a shipping labour force on English ships. And you had a number of um, Indian, Bangladeshi sailors who were part of that labour force and they would be coming into East London and a small number of them stayed and established a small community and that dates back to the 1800s. Um, by, the, by the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s and that post-war period, the invitation for, for um, Commonwealth labour meant that lots more Bengali men in particular were arriving. Um, but they were arriving as transcontinental commuters. They were very much of the kind of mindset that they were going home. By the 1970s, when the Bengali youth movements begin to emerge, though, there is a shift in the in the demographics. And that's when you have um, the, that community decide that actually they're going to invite their families to join them. And that was partly because of the fear of the kind of immigration restrictions that were being brought in and um, the fear that that option might not remain open to them. So you had a new kind of generation of younger people coming in the 1970s and this generation sometimes called the kind of 1.5 generation weren't born here they had the memories of the 1971 civil war for example um, but they definitely saw themselves as British and in the 1970s, you had what was referred to as packy bashing. And this was a term used to describe the kind of quite brutal and regularized kind of violence that the Bengali community were, were, were experiencing. And that was the rise of the National Front. The National Front had relocated their offices to East London. They had begun to sell a newspaper at the Sunday market, and that proved to be a real kind of pinch point every week. Um, and so you had that level of kind of street racist violence, but you also had state racism as well. You also had kind of um, the the housing deprivation that the community were experiencing, which is what my, my research looked at in particular, but also the kind of um, racism that young people were experiencing in the schools. And so the Bangladeshi youth movements were very much born of that violence, the racist violence on the street, 
um, and also kind of um, inflicted by the state. And it was a reaction to the kind of inability of the local um, politicians, the state, to, to, to react and to kind of um, meet the needs of the Bengali community. So the Bengali youth movements were really much, really born off this idea of direct action, of demanding change and of the, the the slogan here to stay here to fight was very much born of that idea that actually they were a community, they were British and they deserved the rights of British citizens. Shabna, you mentioned the racist violence at the time in the East End. One of the most famous examples of this was the murder of Altab Ali, which was seen as a bit of a turning point at the time. Could you explain what happened and what significance that had? Yeah, so um, on the 4th of May 1978, Altabali was murdered. Um, he was a 24-year-old man who was walking home from work um, one early evening. Um, the day was significant because it was also the day of local elections and there were 41 National Front candidates standing for election in those local elections. And so there was a huge amount of tension. And that was a turning point. It was a turning point, sadly, not because it was the first racist murder. There had been other racist murders in East London. And like I said, the level of brutal violence that people experienced was a, a really everyday experience for, for people at that time. But 1978 was really the turning point, And it was a turning point because the, there was kind of um, some intergenerational coalition that did develop here because previously the youth movements, there had been some tension between the older generation who felt that they wanted to, to work through conventional traditional structures, to talk to local politicians, to, to kind of speak to the local police officers and try and, um, and win that kind of um, the, the, the concessions that they needed, the protections that they needed. And with 1978, the kind of disagreement between those generations really did kind of fall away because this was a moment where both the younger and older generation organized this demonstration. Within days, we're talking about thousands of people carrying the coffin of Altabali from East London all the way to Downing Street, demanding that it, what, there wasn't just local action, but that there was kind of... Um, the, the the government paid attention to what was going on in East London and that action needs to be taken. And so that was a real um, turning point for, for the um, Bengali community because it did bring those generations together. And that kind of the, the disapproval in some senses of the older generation was kind of um, mitigated um, by, 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 by the events here. And you mentioned this uh, sort of second generation, the 1.5 generation, as you call it. Uh, were they, what was the sort of direct action that they were interested in doing? Um, and how did it differ from the generation before them? So that's a really interesting question because some of the old generation, they were um, kind of knitted into the traditional structures, working through the local councillors, working through kind of the legal system, working through the Bangladesh High Commission and using those kind of quite formal traditional structures to try and appeal for change. Um, the Bengali um, youth movements were much more of the belief that actually those structures had failed them and therefore they needed to take direct action. And in terms of housing, that was, for example, squatting. So um, the housing allocation system was racist, it was unfair, it would not um, house um, Bengali families. And therefore, um, the Bengali youth were very much involved with 
um, squatting and breaking into and occupying empty properties. And um, in terms of kind of um, uh, the vigilante patrols that developed, again, there was a, a real failure of the police to protect the community. The police were not just failing to protect them, though, they were also complicit often in some of the, the racist violence that the Bengali youth were experiencing. And so direct action, again, involved setting up vigilante patrols so that actually they were on um, standby at um, tube stations in the evening so that um, men returning home from work, like Al-Tabali, um, uh, were, 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 could feel that they had some kind of, uh, someone was there, that someone was able to, to, um, to secure their safety as they returned home. So the the direct action took um, many different forms, but it was very much of the view that actually the stru structures in the state had failed and therefore it, the, the community needs to rely on itself in order to, to provide those functions that the state was, not, not, were, was refusing to or unable to provide. Shamna, you talk about the different kinds of discrimination from the state uh, that Bengali communities were experiencing. Could you offer us a bit of a description of what that really was and how the police were involved in that? So it's, it's really, it feels odd always um, to talk about the, the kind of brutality and the violence um, that people experience and to just talk about it as though it's normal. But the level of violence was really, really quite shocking. And um, people weren't safe in their homes. They would be um, kind of, um, their windows would be broken, doors would be kicked down, arson attacks. People would be attacked on the streets. Um, women had their saris um, ripped off. Um, just really random, vicious levels of everyday violence. Now, the police were often called. The police were called and they would attend. If they attended, then the reaction was often that um, they would police the, the people, the, the Bengali um, people who had called the police in the first place, demand to see their passports, um, demand to, to um, search them first and foremost, um, and would then not pursue any kind of further um, information that the Bengali um, victims might give about who the perpetrators of violence were. That was a very common occurrence. Um, there were all, often also reports of the um, police not just ignoring and not just following up on, on cases, but where they had followed up, they would then advise the, the Bengali victims to, to not pursue charges because actually um, in order to um, keep kind of what they called um, harmonious race relations at the time, it was felt that pursuing um, claims with the police where there was obvious evidence um, that, that actually wasn't very helpful. So the police ignored, they refused to pursue claims where um, people um, could very clearly and there were witness statements taken um, uh, and kind of the actual weapon was on the scene and the police wouldn't pursue that. But there are also occasions where the state, where the police would actually go in, um, for example, for squatting was not illegal, the police were not allowed to intervene, but the police would help um, local people in the estates break into the homes of squatted Bengali families and um, physically um, uh, uh, you know, um, rip them out of their homes, chuck all of the, the belongings out of the home as well. So the, the police weren't just kind of um, ignorant and um, uh, not acting on it. They were actually sometimes complicit with that racist violence. 
And I just finally wanted to ask, we've talked about the urgency of understanding the Bengali community as being part of this radical collective action. Why do you think it matters that these subjects are taught in schools? Well, first and foremost, I think we are going through a period, and I really welcome that, where we are beginning to kind of review our history and what we understand of our histories. And it's really important to do that because so much of our history has been erased and the the archives don't record um, any of these events from the Bengali perspective. Um, But I also think that there is a particular issue with um, Asian and Bengali communities. There has long been this idea that the Bengali community are passive, that they have been kind of conservative and that they will um, just acquiesce to the violence and um, didn't really put up a fight and resist the violence. And I think that that is uh, an absolute kind of... um, erasure of the radicalism of that period. And I certainly, um, growing up, had no idea about this history. And this is just, we're talking about my parents' generation. And um, it's one of those things that our parents almost have kind of um, decided that actually this isn't important because the world has told them that it isn't important. And so it, it is our generation's duty and responsibility to recover that history and to celebrate it and to recognise it for for where we are now. And then for, for us to take that baton on and then to, to move forward with it as well, because the work isn't done. That's such a powerful way of putting it. And I suppose for pupils in the classroom to see different communities struggling for their own independence and their own rights is such an inspiring and interesting thing and opens up the possibility for them to see a community in a different way. Yeah, so um, my background is in teaching and again, um, as a pupil, but as a teacher, when you don't see yourself reflected in the curriculum, when the history feels as though it's always someone else's history and it's someone else's story that's being told and celebrated, there is that real disconnect. And and I think it's really important for all young people, um, regardless of their background, to A, know that history is very colourful and it isn't just this kind of white, um, monarchical um, em- story of empire. Um, but that actually what we have today, the kind of the structures, institutions, the the rights that we have today have been won by a, a range of different radical groups and communities. And the Bengali community is definitely one of those. You mentioned housing in all of this. Um, and so was it really the case that the housing system, the racism within the housing system was so embedded that allocation of housing was specifically not given to Bengali families. Could you explain a bit more about how that is allowed to happen uh, not so long ago? So, yeah, in the 1970s, um, the GLC and Tower Hamlets Council were the main providers of housing in East, in East London and Tower Hamlets. And they had specific rules. For example, you had to have been resident in the UK for five years and you had to have had a, a continuous residence in Tower Hamlets for a year. So for lots of these men who had applied for their families to come and join them here, they would often have had to return home for a short period in order to, um, uh, to, to get their wives to get the paperwork sorted. And so that um, that short um, kind of um, 
journey out, out of London back to Bangladesh to kind of do the paperwork would then mean that they didn't qualify for housing and, and they would have to wait. Where they were often um, awarded um, housing, the other problem was um, that they would often be dispersed out of the kind of E1 Spitalfields area into um, areas and estates where they were completely isolated. And and what would happen was that very often those families would arrive and they would be received by a, a not very welcoming committee and they would be obstructed from entering the, the tenancy that they'd been given. And often those families, even if they did manage to go in and move in, would very often within days leave the, the tenancy that they'd been awarded in perhaps Poplar or Bow and return to, to Spitalfields to squat because that was preferable to living on an estate where actually your your kind of your ability to open your front door and to leave your house safely was was threatened. And who else were involved in these movements? Because it wasn't just Bengali men. There was the role for women and children too, and families more broadly. How did that all fit together? So that's a really interesting question because one of the things about the squatters movement in particular was that often we hear about the men who are at the kind of front and at the forefront of these movements. But it was the women who were the guardians of the squatted homes. They were the ones who were at home, often working as well. So we often kind of think about women at home just because they're looking after children. But these women were working, they were involved in the rag trade. And so they were working at home and they would have had to be the, the guardians of the squat in the sense that were the council officials, the police, who were not supposed to come and knock at the door, but who did. Um, uh, they, they were having the, the conversations there and they were the ones who had to protect and secure the squat whilst the kind of men of the household might have been out working. Um, so, so women were definitely there at the... Um, in, as part of the squatters movement. And there were other solidarities as well across communities. So one of the big um, connections to wider kind of um, uh, race movements at the time was with the Race Today Collective. And so the Race Today Collective were a group of intellectuals and activists. Um, they were the likes of Darkus Howe, Farouk Dondi, Mala Sen, who were also actually involved in some of the Brixton squats at the time. And they supported the Bengali squatter community and the Bengali youth movement. So they were developing in their very early phase in the sense that they provided that wider connection, that this was was part of uh, a wider experience of a migrant community and various different migrant communities. And to really see both the racialized and the class dimensions of the kind of um, the, the experiences of Bengali community were having in the 1970s. So there was that solidarity between different communities and very much the, the, the Bengali youth movements described themselves as black at that time um, because there was this sense that all communities, all migrant communities, whether they were Black African, Black Caribbean, um, Bengali, um, Indian, were experiencing similar levels and um, experiences of racist violence. I'd love to pick up on that notion of solidarity across different groups and how it was articulated as political blackness. What else was going on in terms of South Asian communities across the UK at the time? 
So that solidarity was really important. And I think that there, uh, it's important to also kind of think about the, the class dimensions. There was tension and there was solidarity. There was tension because obviously a lot of the racist violence that the Bengali community experienced were at the hands of the white working class at the time. So there, were, there, were, there, there was significant tension there between kind of white working class and um, the Bengali community. But there were also... Um, uh, the efforts to try and locate the class issues within the community's experience as well. And so um, you did have lots of the local left organisations, socialist organisations come in and provide some support. At that time, though, I think there was uh, the, uh, there was an overall sense that actually the, the youth movements were very much wanted to be self-reliant in terms of not kind of... Um, a, a, a kind of accepting some of that support from the the socialist left organizations at the time but also not wanting to be appropriated to their agendas um and in terms of the sort of legacy of these youth movements, what do they mean for the community today in Tower Hamlets? Uh, but also, what did they achieve? I think that for for lots of the people that were involved in those Bangladeshi youth movements, the, the various different organisations that developed, that was really the kind of their route into um, political careers. So lots of those young people, and you have to remember, they would have arrived kind of like in their mid-teens. They would have had a really disrupted education and went on to then become local councillors and be become part of that kind of local political framework. So... Um, at least three of the kind of um, squatter, squatter activists, for example, went on to become the first Bengali local councillors. And that's quite a significant achievement in terms of going from a community that could not kind of um, uh, engage with the local housing system to then actually be on those housing committees and making some of those decisions. That was quite a significant um, uh, kind of uh, development of that community. And I think lots of those, um, that, that generation went on to remain active and have, for example, established um, cultural um, events within the within Tower Hamlets, which celebrate the kind of Bangladeshi's uh, community arrival, but also the contributions that they've made to Tower Hamlets. I think that um, part of the, the the problem is that one of the when we've kind of talk only about culture. And celebrate culture. We forget the more kind of radical anti-racist traditions that we that we kind of also brought to the area, and that's been part of the reason why I was very um, interested in doing the work on the Bengali squatters movement, because we we celebrate culture and we have very nice kind of art in Brick Lane, but what we don't have are the real memories of what that kind of um, period, what the radicalism was of that uh, of that generation and how they really did confront one of the most hostile and brutal racist, racist kind of states um, and, and street violence. And they, they, they really challenged that. And I think that that memory is really important to how we understand where the community is now. And 
there's something so powerful about that slogan, we're here to stay and we're here to fight, because it is, it goes against that sort of more traditionalist narrative and talks about the real radical contribution of these communities. Um, And do you think that that will have real resonances for young pupils in the classroom? Yeah, I think the the here to stay, here to fight slogan um, kind of really does live on, right? Because there are so many ways in which we're asked to kind of water ourselves down, to assimilate. And actually, the terms of the, the Bangladeshi youth movement was that this is us um, and we have every right to be here and reclaiming and really understanding what that meant as a slogan and what it meant to to young people to be able to say that at the time where they were actually being rejected by the state and being marginalized in terms of why, you know, what, 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 right they had to be here. Um, I think it's really important that we we see that slogan and we hear that and then we kind of reinterpret it for the, the issues that we face today. Shabna, you spoke about solidarity uh, between different communities in the UK. What also was going on in terms of solidarity with communities abroad? The Bengali youth movement was obviously connected to what was going on in Bangladesh at the time. Could you describe how and what effect that had? So you're absolutely right. So um, Bangladesh was born in 1971. It was born as a result of a brutal nine-month civil war. And preceding that, there had been um, uh, many years of um, what were considered to be effectively colonial violence inflicted by the the Pakistani state. So um, the, the Bengali independence movement was very much rooted in this idea that they had been, that their language, their culture had been oppressed, that the West Pakistani military had imposed its dominance, the West Pakistani government had imposed its dominance. So lots of the the Bengali um, youth who had arrived in the 1970s in England carried the legacy of the 1971 civil war, which was a war which actually, by all uh, kind of accounts, they shouldn't have won. They, they you know, the, the West Pakistani military was um, well funded and they had inflicted this brutal military invasion and occupation of East Pakistan. Um, and this was uh, a, a, an unarmed nation which declared independence before they'd even won the civil war on the basis that actually they were not going to tolerate that colonial relationship between the two wings and between West Pakistan and East Pakistan. And so they had seen um, the kind of the fight for justice back home in um, in um, Bangladesh, and they carried that radicalism into, into what they did right here. And lots of the people that I spoke to who had memories of the time very much spoke of the, the 1971 civil war as being an inspiration for why they would not put up with that exploitation and violence here in Britain, that they had survived the most brutal civil war and they were not going to come to to Britain and um, allow themselves to be mistreated here. That's fascinating. And I suppose the other side of it as well is taking inspiration from anti-colonial struggles across the globe. Uh, And how did that sort of impact the way in which young people were thinking at that time? 
So coming back to race today and the intellectual support that they gave to to this uh, to the community and to activists at the time, they very much did see themselves as part of this international experience rooted in colonialism, and that that colonial violence hadn't ended with independence. It was an ongoing experience. It was ongoing for the migrant communities who had travelled from from what was the core to the periphery, and that these these experiences were part of that long-term evolution of colonialism. And therefore, to see that there was a real solidarity of experience of all those migrant groups who are here in the UK, but also other other, um, uh, movements internationally as well. Absolutely. I mean, in in an Our Migration Story resource on this, uh, it, it speaks of this amazing slogan, which was adopted by the Asian youth movements following the death of Al-Tab Ali um, from uh, the children of Soweto in South Africa, which was Don't Mourn Organised. So you see how those ideas were internationally formed and internationalist by nature. It sounds like the story of the Asian youth movements and the Bengali youth movements is one of inherent interconnectedness, not only cross-generationally, but also in terms of solidarity with Black power movements um, and other politically Black movements, and of course, that internationalist, anti-colonial struggle. What strength did that give the movement? I think there's enormous strength, isn't there, when you realise that actually the the experiences that you have and that you kind of are... are um, imagined as though they are only yours, this narrow experience, when you see that actually they are connected to this much broader historical and geographical um, uh, set of movements, you really do see the strength of uh, of that movement. And I think that... um, for, for the Bengali youth movements at the time and for Bing- the Bengali community, they had much more of an awareness. Perhaps it was because they were a mobile community. Perhaps it was because they had kind of survived this civil war and they could see that that civil war was rooted in British colonialism as well. The construction of East and West Pakistan was a legacy of British colonialism. So there was a much clearer and visceral understanding of both the histories, which are often now kind of buried um, for, for, for our kind of um, young people. But there was much kind of closer connection, both to those histories and geographies, um, and therefore the connections as well. So, uh, Anandi, who were the Asian youth movements? So the Asian youth movements were um, groups of uh, young Asian, mainly men, um, Um, people in the 70s and 80s that organised in their own communities to defend themselves against racist attacks, but also to struggle and campaign against uh, uh, state racism. So that's both the victimisation that they experienced from the police, as well as uh, the racism of the immigration laws that divided um, their families. So... Anandi, you mentioned the United Black Youth League, which is a splinter group of the Asian youth movements. And I'm just wondering in relation to that, the term black is something that had resonance at that time in relation to political blackness. Um, And that was something that was central to the Asian youth movements. And I was wondering if you can explain what that is and how it fit in uh, with the organising and the resistance work at the time. 
Yeah, so um, although they call themselves the Asian youth movements, they politically, they very much identified with a black identity. They saw uh, the struggle... Um, the the struggle against racism in this country as very much uh, connected to um the um the struggles against slavery and colonialism and imperialism internationally and they were inspired by um the the struggles in South Africa um anti-colonial struggles uh, both within the Indian subcontinent um as well as um things like the struggle in, um, in Zimbabwe, which was more contemporary. Uh, uh, some of the youth from Bradford and Manchester um, went to meetings at the time of the Lancaster House Agreement in Manchester to hear those that were involved in the independence struggles at that time. Uh, they were inspired by... Um, uh, the uh, the Black Power movement in America. Uh, so it was all of those in a sense, and that's why they used um, like the the fist, you know, the Black Power fist in in a lot of their their literature. Um, so it was it, th that was that was a real there was a real sense of of solidarity, I think, across and understanding racism as a as a shared experience. And that the most powerful way forward was for people to offer solidarity to each other. And I would say that, you know, they were incredible networkers, um, not just amongst Asian youth, but, you know, amongst a variety of different black organizations. And of course, say in Bradford, they'd come out of um, organizations like the Revolutionary Communist Group, um, the uh, about a militant, um, the um, international socialists, which is what SWP was called previously. So they had these connections as well um, with the left, um, and yes, uh, so so they were thinking very much along a sort of like you know Marxist um, you know principles. Um, have I got? I've got a bit lost in the conversation now. Sorry. No, I think, I mean, to pick up on those Marxist principles on which they were thinking, um, it's clear that there were sort of a number of influences. And obviously those intersect radically because um, obviously black power was very connected to the radical left. Um, but I'm wondering as well with those sort of influences from the left, um, from the the SWP and its in its former guise, the Socialist Workers Party. Um, how did that feed into the Asian youth movements, and what was that relationship like? Well, they left <laughs> the left organisations to form their own own parties because they felt they didn't want to be used as a token to say, you know, this is a sideline issue. For them, the questions of the safety of their community, the questions of divided families. Um, their right to an education, to housing, to um, to jobs, um, you know, were, were central. It wasn't. It wasn't a, a sort of an add-on. Um, and uh, I think that that's one of the reasons why they felt they had to organise independently. Shabna, I'm wondering how this fits into the 
context within the East End specifically, um, thinking about the different influences that were there at the time. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to that a bit uh, in terms of not only this notion of political blackness and that influence amongst Bengali youth movements, but also the on the other side, um, the sort of influence of the uh, left, often, you know, predominantly white organisations. So, so like I said, in terms of the, the the role of political blackness, and Andy described it as the, the shared experience of racism was seen to be the most kind of unifying of, of kind of um, forces. And so for the Bengali community, there was a real sense that they described themselves as part of this shared black experience, that racism was universally experienced by all different minority groups albeit with kind of different emphases and different kind of um, kind of racialized tropes and uh, all sorts that interacted with that. Um, so there was a real sense and uh, of solidarity. And uh, one of the things that I mentioned was that the, the Race Today Collective were very much involved in supporting the Bengali community, both in terms of the squatting and then later on in the anti-racist organisation um, uh, that happened to, um, in terms of the violence of the, the national front. And that solidarity, um, the, the Race Today Collective were based in Brixton in southeast London. And there was a, a, a kind of a squatting experience there as well, as well as kind of the kind of intellectual support that they provided to the Bengali um, activists. In terms of the left at the time, I think that there was um, both solidarity, but there was uh, incredible tension as well, because it was that the how the conversation about what do you prioritize class or race and for the for the left at the time class was the overall kind of um uh, analytical factor that was the way in which you described the working class experience but for the bengali community you have to remember actually that it was often the working class white community that were the aggressors and that were the perpetrators of violence so in order to kind of um create a sense of solidarity. You had to kind of um, jump outside of the Bengali experience. You were inviting the Bengali community to um, express solidarity and find um, strength from a working class community who were often the aggressors. And that's why there was that tension. There was a tension because for, um, for all of the shared experience on a class basis, which political blackness was about, political blackness, like we said, and like Anandi mentioned, was very much rooted in that kind of radical Marxist um, international workers um, uh, analysis of how politics worked. But it was also very much rooted in the sense that race was absolutely a way of kind of dividing the working class and therefore there needed to be uh, a, a sense of political blackness that um, at least equated race with class, if not prioritised it given the experiences that they were having. That's fascinating, especially in relation to this broader understanding of collective organising. And it seems like collective organising was something that was felt across Asian youth movements. So it sort of encompassed Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, Christian, uh, young people, um, all in all in one uh, sort of one campaign. Um, and I suppose that is in some ways most typified by the Bradford 12 defence campaign, Anandi. And I'm wondering if you could explain what that was and, and what its relevance is today. 
So um, the Bradford 12 were 12 young Asian men who um, came from a variety of backgrounds, Christian, Sikh, Muslim, Hindu, um, who were arrested um, after July 1981 um, for making petrol bombs, which they never used, to defend their community against fascist attack. Um, so, um, so yes, so 1981 um, saw discontent across a variety of um, towns and cities. I can't remember, but it was dozens of towns and cities um, against both uh, racism as well as um, uh, the, the problems caused by the economic depression. And uh, so the rising tensions uh, in Bradford um, had, well, earlier in 1981, there'd been increasing uh, uh, racist attacks, um, particularly in London. There was conflicts that in Southall that led to a pub burning down. Uh, in Walthamstow, a family had been uh, petrol bombed and died, the Khan family, um, as a result of that violence. So there was increasing fear across the country that fascists were going to be marching into Asian communities. The uh, United Black Youth League, who had separated from the Asian youth movements on um, the decision, because of the decision by the AYMs to take uh, state funding, which they felt compromised the organisation, they had heard that fascists were going to be coming to Bradford. So they were determined not to let fascists march through their community. They made these petrol bombs that they never used. And then uh, they left them somewhere, I don't know, under a bridge or something. Uh, never thought about it. And then a couple of months later, they were all arrested when these petrol bombs were found by the police. There was um, immediate uproar um, because nothing had really, in a sense, happened. And um, it was seen, and I think it was, an attack on activists that had been uh, mobilizing, um, supporting their communities against racism. So the two leading defendants um, had been centrally involved in the Asian youth movements and then in the establishment of the United Black Youth League. And uh, so it was seen on attack, as an attack on political activism and, on, on, and the attempt by the state to criminalise activists. So special branch were involved very early on in uh, searching the flats of um, the, the 12 and in the interrogation of the 12 um, uh, when they were arrested. Um, many of the conversations at that point during their arrest were about um, their political activity. So one of the leading defendants was asked to speak not just about Britain, but about his position on South Africa, on uh, Zimbabwe, on Northern Ireland, on all kinds of on all kinds of things. So this was an, an interrogation and an attempt to criminalise those uh, for their political beliefs. 
Um, there is a connection in the Bradford 12 campaign and the relationship that they had with the police and with Special Branch and with this very specific type of interrogation with the case of uh, the Mangrove Nine as well. Um, and again, this is that connection of uh, black communities, uh, South Asian communities collectively organising against racism and that political blackness that was there at the time in, in, in kind of articulating that. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just talk a bit about that connection between uh, the Mangrove Nine case and that of the Bradford Twelve. So I suppose it's this question about the attempts to criminalise uh, a community, so um, which is very similar to the Mangrove Nine. There are also other things in terms of the campaign. There were also other similarities. So um, as far as I remember, one of the Mangrove Nine chose to defend themselves in court. And a similar thing happened with the Bradford Twelve. Um, so uh, Tariq Ali decided to uh, not use a barrister. He had a Mackenzie, but he uh, defended himself in court. Um, so it's possible that they learned those tactics, in a sense, from the Mangrove Nine about when someone stands up to defend themselves, the way they can say something and the kinds of things they can say, it, it, it opens it up within the courtroom. I think one of the important things, so one is the case, and then, of course, the other is the campaign, and you've, 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 you're speaking about the campaign. And one of the important things about the Bradford 12 campaign was, again, this incredible mobilization of um, groups, communities, um, in their defense. So, and this wasn't simply black organizations, Asian organizations, um, because it was believed that this was an attack on the community and on those who had tried to defend their community. They had support uh, from uh, trade unions, uh, Labour Party branches, uh, left organisations, of course, African-Caribbean organisations, Asian organisations, uh, temples, gurdwaras, mosques, feminist bookshops, socialist bookshops, all kinds of things. There were literally hundreds of organisations, national and international, um, that supported them. And I think that if we look at the legacy of the Bradford 12 campaign, I think the ability to network, to mobilise, to focus on, you know, and the value in a sense of those single issue campaigns to say, whatever our differences, this is wrong and we are collectively going to stand up and say no. And that ability to mobilise and to show solidarity, the power of solidarity is the thing that comes across more than anything else. And of course, it wasn't just the police who were a hostile force in relation to the Bradford 12. It was also the media as well, right? In terms of the way that the media chose to portray 12 South Asian black men um, and and how they would uh, sort of talk about the, the, the way in which they had been campaigning. It's very hostile um, and 
very reminiscent of the way in which lots of black and brown communities have been portrayed um, by the media. Um, And I'm just wondering, Anandi, how does that fit in? How does the media portrayal uh, fit into the broader sort of work of the Bradford 12 campaign? So I think, um, well, you made a very important point there. You know, they were using terms like bomb factory as though there was some like huge uh, operation taking place, you know, that these were, um, you know, terrorists that had to be, you know, had to be stopped. So it was kind of all blown out of uh, proportion. And But we've seen through the years and we still see today, the way in which um, those that resist are demonized. And um, that was certainly the case, you know, at that time. And um, and following that also with, you know, with some of the later campaigning organizations uh, like the Sheffield Asian Youth Movement, similarly would find um, very negative um, press responses. Um, but at the time, the uh, the campaign, they had newsletters. So they, in a sense, uh, worked to get their own media and their own news out. So they, the, um, so the court, the, the trial was in Leeds and uh, there was a very well-established uh, left paper at the time called Leeds Other Paper. And they had very good links with Leeds Other Paper. This was partly to do with um, Big Flame. That was uh, one of the um, organizations, one of the white left organizations that were supporting the campaign. So they worked with Leeds Other Paper to put news out constantly about the campaign um, and, you know, the different directions um, and, and approaches. So it started off as a campaign that was very much around uh, police conspiracy. And once the trial began and um, the prosecution became aware that this, the c- campaign was going to be run on uh, the position of self-defense and the right of a community to self-defense, then those kind of messages changed within the paper. They also had uh, people that sat in the court every day. This was the campaign and took notes. And every week there was like a bulletin that went out to members of the campaign so they could understand what was happening in the in the court and they could, um, you know, inform uh, the support groups about uh, the different points and positions within the the trial. So it was very, very organized in terms of their own media and getting their own ideas, you know, across. Um, and, um, and yes, and then eventually, you know, Leeds Other Paper, uh, they produced this incredible commemorative document um, drawing on all the experiences uh, uh, during that trial. So... Anandi and Shabna, why do you think it matters that Asian youth movements are taught in schools, the history of the Asian youth movements are taught in schools? I think that for any community, it's crucial um, that they know their own history. And also, this isn't just part of, if you like, the Asian community's history. This is a part of British history. Uh, we are part of the wider community and it's our um, struggles to uh, create a more equitable society um, that have made this 
place a better place. Um, so you can't you can't uh, silo experiences um, and ignore experiences. And you know there are so many. It's such a you know. Um, a rich field as well. If you want people to be interested in history, the history has to speak to them. Um, and people could be speaking with their grandparents and, you know, grand uncles and all sorts to learn about what their roles and their experiences were at this moment in time. Um, so it's about inspiring. It's about understanding the past so we can create a better future. And, and just on that as well, I think it's really important to locate this as not just kind of the history of these separate communities. It's the contribution that these organisations, these activists, the mobilisation here made to the wider civil rights framework that we all enjoy regardless, right? So what we've talked about in terms of the role of the police, the role of um, protest and demonstration, thinking about... Um, the role of wider civil society, society organisations and the kind of um, the collaboration between those. All of that speaks to the wider social and political kind of framework that we both enjoy now and how we've arrived at that. And often Asian youth movements, Asian history and the contributions that were made by those communities is erased from those accounts. And, and like Anandi says, if you don't see yourself represented in what you learn about and see and hear at school, then, then that's not attractive to you. That's not appealing to you. And you know that you are losing something uh, and everyone loses something when we don't when we don't kind of um, include these histories. Absolutely. I have to say, when I discovered this and these histories, that was a huge moment for me to understanding more about what people who look like me and, and our contributions were to the anti-racist struggle. Um, and that really centred an understanding of a different type of South Asian history to this country and in this country, which is so fundamental. And that is that history of struggle and solidarity and collective action. Um, and it's so exciting that that can now be sort of told in schools so that every child can have an engagement with this amazing, interesting and extremely compelling part of history. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Runnymede Trust's Teaching Race Matters podcast. The Our Migration Story website, a collaboration with the universities of Manchester and Cambridge, contains more details about this area of history and provides resources on how to teach it in school classrooms. It can be found on the Runnymede Trust website.